Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest today uh, on NDTV. Usually, as, as it goes in the world of news, you have powerful politicians, business tycoons, or thought leaders. But here is one gentleman who is, in the sense, the rolled, one rolled into the last two, thought leader, entrepreneur, and in so many ways, one can say, modern-day tech czar. Uh, let's welcome Mr. Eric Daimler. Mr. Daimler, good to see you. Good to have you on NDTV. Thank you for the kind introduction. It's good to be here. If I can say this, uh, AI probably today is the most, uh, is the buzzword. Is the buzzword and uh, is also a very fearsome word, word right now, you know, particularly in the markets or the emerging markets where uh, we do have a consistent challenge of generating jobs. And when we see something like AI coming on the horizon, it, it almost automatically becomes threatening. Since you are one of the pioneers in this field, you know, you, 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 you thought or talked about AI when the world probably hadn't heard about it. Let me first ask you, let me, let, let me, let me roll back a bit. Let me first ask you, you know, how did you land up with AI? I've been doing AI for 20 plus years. Uh, I, I've been an entrepreneur, uh, six times I've been a venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road. Uh, I, and, uh, I've been an academic, a researcher at Stanford and Carnegie Mellon uh, in AI, which is where my PhD is from. Uh, but if people know me, uh, they'll often know me from the time I spent in the Obama administration as the AI advisor. So I, I've been doing this a while from a lot of different perspectives. Yes, uh, I'll come back to that Obama administration bit, you know, because that's also a very interesting bit. That's where probably the official rollout of an AI policy for the first time started to happen in, on the globe, uh, not only in the United States, but in the globe itself, you know, that was probably the, and you played the pivotal role in it in, in terms of an official rollout of a policy on AI. But let me go back, you know, uh, uh, a bit and uh, again ask you, you know, 20 years back, no one, would, no one had heard of AI or, you know, you, probably the words like machine learning or computer learning was, were there. We had heard of them. No one had heard about AI. Yeah, when I was in the, the White House, I was uh, pounding my table uh, as, as hard as I could uh, for AI to have people be aware of the future that was coming. But I am really grateful for the introduction of ChatGPT because there's nothing like the threatened loss of your job to have you pay attention. That's what's changed. Right. But that's, a, as I said, you know, I write in the very beginning that, that that's a very threatening uh, prospect. Uh, that prospect is also very real currently. And that prospect is looming large. So therefore, uh, Mr. Damnia, uh, the challenge here is, as I said, in the uh, emerging markets, that uh, how do we view it? Do we view it as a friend? Do we view it as a foe? Do we view it somewhere in the middle of the road? Yeah. There's a few things to say about that. You know, many ways, you know, how we deal with this technology is how we'll deal with any sort of automation, wherever it's been. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I am grateful that I uh, work where I work and not in the farms like my ancestors did because of automation. <laughs> Right? I am grateful that I don't work in a factory because of automation. Uh, so for many of us, uh, we benefit from the increased productivity available from automation. Uh, and all of us enjoy the lifestyle that we have today, such as it is, from the increases in productivity afforded us by automation installed by our ancestors. 
And, and I expect that to continue. All of us will have better lives in a broad sense, but it will be disruptive as it has always been. What's different is people talk about the speed, the rapidity of the, of the changes, and in a digital economy, that is what's different. So in the past, when we automated uh, farming, or we automated uh, uh, elevators, or we automated uh, telephone switching, that, that took a little while to be adopted, and some people that were in those jobs could stay there until they retired. You would just know that your children wouldn't then be going into that career. What's different about today is with digital technology doesn't work, doesn't work, doesn't work, and then as soon as it works, it works infinitely well, and I don't need to wait until Monday morning to get rid of the staff that previously did the job. That's what's changed. That can be massively disruptive to the individual that did the job. That's now everywhere, everywhere. It's not just in uh, uh, labor, uh, uh, you know, blue-collar jobs, as we might say. It's not in it, but it's also not just in uh, uh, white-collar jobs. It's also in creative professions, as we see. It, it, it's all over. It, it's hard to predict where the disruption is going to take place exactly, and it's even harder to predict the timing. Uh, so in, in many ways, I could lay out what a future of AI is going to look like, and I have a pretty good sense in a broad way uh, uh, for the type of AI that, that I work on, where it's going uh, over the next period of time. But, but the exact timing about when jobs are going to get displaced uh, or the, the, the magnitude of some of those disruptions, that's, that's very difficult, very difficult to predict. I just can tell you it's going to be upsetting for those people that have those jobs. Well, yes, uh, but the fact remains that in a country like India and most of the populous world, you know, what we popularly probably describe as emerging markets, jobs, as I said, have been a consistent challenge. Even today, number one challenge for our policymakers is to generate quality jobs, uh, number of quality jobs on a sustained basis. Now, on <coughs> top of that comes this disruption, huge disruption, Eric, and uh, as you said, you are, you are one of the pioneers and you, you are telling me that we probably don't know the magnitude of it or when is it going to hit us with full magnitude. Uh, it becomes tricky, right? India has a special place among developing economies you know, writ large. And I, I started my career in, in emerging markets uh, globally, so I, I have some more familiarity. It's not new to me about the dynamics in these countries uh, uh, and the way that they will experience uh, job displacement. But in India has a special place to play uh, because India, uh, for, for, for better or for worse in some sense, has become the, the world's back office. Uh, you know, there is a 50 billion US dollar market in data engineering. Uh, and uh, India dominates about, about two thirds of that, uh, that business. That's an amazing place to be in, as that work becomes automated. So India has this power by owning, well, in some sense, the digital infrastructure uh, of the world, the back office of, of every large company, you know, at least has considered uh, having some degree of outsourcing uh, and, and, and operations in India. Uh, but that... That work, data science, data engineering that, that Indian companies do, Infosys, Tata, Wipro, Tipco, those companies uh, will experience a disruption of their jobs uh, over the next 
you know, say five to seven years. That, that $50 billion business is, if not going away entirely, it's going to be uh, remarkably disrupted because AI, like the type that, that uh, my, me and my co-founders uh, sell, uh, we do about a 200 to 1 labor compression. Uh, on that work, and so there's there's no amount of cost reduction. Two hundred to one. Yeah, there's no amount of cost reduction that can compete with with that sort of automation. We we our AI automates that that work. You could have that work be free, and our AI will still be a better a better choice. So that's that's a really tough place for India to be uh, for people doing that work. However. Owning that digital infrastructure, there's already this, this fantastic sensibility, uh, generally, uh, as I've experienced, uh, among Indians. You know, I, uh, at, at dinner a couple of days ago, I, I have a casual conversation with, with one of the guests uh, about irrational numbers. I mean, that, that is not a common dinner conversation. And it's just, I, I think, well, this is just a lovely, uh, stereotypical thing that I expected to be in India, and that's, that's what happened. You know, that, that technical sophistication can be leveraged to uh, transfer the, 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 you know, the built-in uh, establishment of digital infrastructure in India into a, a, a higher level of leadership. Uh, you know, it might end up being a little like the, the movie where uh, at, at the, the, the quiet uh, supporting character at the end of the movie turns out to be the mastermind of the whole time. I mean, that's the type of story uh, that I think is available to India as we transition from that today manual $50 billion market into uh, a more automated future uh, of the digital economy. So you think India can be that uh, tactical mastermind since we have that expertise and leverage even during this transitional phase, which uh, quite clearly looks from your conversation is not going to be very painless. I think that opportunity is available broadly to, to uh, Indians and to the companies based in India, yes. Because, the, because of what I say, the sensibility uh, of Indians broadly uh, is, from my experience, uh, uh, it has tended to if not be outright out technical, kind of respect uh, technical education. Uh, and so the first stop towards transforming the digital economy will be these companies that are based in India and the Indians that are employed at these companies. That, that's the opportunity. I'll come back to this digital infrastructure a bit, Mr. Daimler, uh, but, but uh, do you think the current uh, slowdown, the tech slowdown that we are also facing currently, the big tech companies, you named all of them, uh, is somehow linked to this upswing in the AI? Y yes, because I'm not experiencing a slowdown. <laughs> we we, we uh, are, are replacing manual work. Like every automative uh, automation technology before us uh, uh, we are we are automating uh, expensive slow and error-prone work in, in our particular case it's in the digital infrastructure but that's the same standard that motivates people to adopt uh, 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 automation in in the past uh, and so yeah, we are not experiencing a slowdown because of this benefit and that is uh, absolutely uh, uh, a dynamic that would be felt differently uh, on the other side. Other side, absolutely. Digital public infrastructure, uh, Eric, uh, is something that uh, our Prime Minister, Mr. Modi, and the government that he has run for the last 10 years has put a lot of emphasis on. Uh, a lot of government's investments, a lot of government's effort, initiative, and uh, 
their capital they have expended on uh, promoting digital public infrastructure. And India as a country, because of the huge size and huge, humongous population, quite clearly has much to benefit from it, digital public infrastructure. Do you think that infusion of AI into it, into the digital public infrastructure, can actually benefit the last mile connectivity in the terms of delivering better to the lowest strata of the society? One, I, one thing I learned uh, in my uh, public service uh, in, in the White House was that uh, I couldn't, what, like it was in a commercial setting, choose my customers. In a public setting, I, I have to serve 100% of the population, not 99, not, uh, not 98, but you know, 100% uh, of, the, of the population. So uh, we have also, in the United States, uh, embarked on a massive uh, transformation of our digital infrastructure from the federal government down to states uh, and down to cities. You know, I live in San Francisco, and, and certainly we have uh, a, a new uh, uh, a new way of interacting with many of our uh, government services uh, through digital um, digital means. The United States isn't always ahead of this, so I, and I think this is a good example of where India could actually take some degree of leadership. Uh, you know, often we will look to places like Singapore, uh, you know, smaller countries, but ones that are, are certainly investing in digital infrastructure that uh, show us where we're, where this is going at addressing 100% uh, of the population. So I absolutely think that. The template established uh, by by the countries already doing this, Estonia is another good example, uh, it sets a standard for the rest of us in, in bigger bigger countries. Because as I say, digital technology doesn't work, doesn't work, and then as soon as it works, it does work for infinite scale. So it's really the same sort of thought process. We can potentially deliver much better services to a broader uh, uh, slice of the population through the digital economy. But this is, important. this is an important part about, about AI. What people often will think is that, oh, I just need to uh, uh, put this form online. Uh, or I just need to have that form uh, automatically routed to a, another department. That's not what I'm talking about. That misses the opportunity. So often in AI implementations, I see the, the claim that, oh, I did 80% of the digitization and we will work on the other 20% of this digitization over time, and, but we'll have to do it manually a little bit. And we'll just use this example of filling out, say, immigration forms. Or, uh, but often, <laughs> almost always, what I see is uh, uh, that work that people thought was 80% was really 1% or one half of 1%. They, they did the easy part, but they left out the hard part. Uh, uh, and, and that's what is unaddressed often by many of these implementations, AI or not. Uh, and, and, and we can talk again about what, it, what a good AI implementation looks like. And uh, let me take you back to your Obama administration years. On the front of jobs, there is one concern. There's another bigger concern about deep fakes, about uh, imitating videos, about uh, people's privacy being absolutely uh, shredded by the use of AI-driven tech. Uh, 
whether it's personally violative of their own spaces is something completely different. Probably people will react differently to it. But nonetheless, it is alarming. Uh, in the Obama administration and otherwise as an, as an independent AI practitioner or entrepreneur or leader in that field, what do you think, you know, the safety mechanisms, what are the, you know, the roadblocks that we can put, the firewalls that we can put or the industry needs to put for it to not go completely out of hand? Yeah, I can say several uh, things about that. You know, when I was in the federal government, uh, this wasn't seen as a big of an issue uh, as it is today. Uh, we, we perceive the risk uh, differently than we do today. One, uh, I guess I have technical answers and I have regulatory answers. So, uh, first of all, on the technical answer, that this is important uh, because so often uh, boards of directors, senior leadership of companies want to just delegate these problems to IT and just say, you guys, you guys take care of it. And that is, that is an abdication of their responsibility uh, as, as fiduciaries to, to, the, to investors. They need to develop the infrastructure so that they are bringing data together in a way that is provably complete. The, the idea that I bring databases together and just test them and then test them and test them some more, that is, just by definition, prone to failure. I mean, that is an induction. You know, all, all birds, uh, this bird has wings, this animal has wings, this animal has wings, therefore, you know, all birds have wings. That's induction. Uh, if I had a million animals with wings, it doesn't mean there's one exception. That's what testing does for us. That's induction. What we, this is high school logic that the boards of directors need to not delegate to IT. They need to understand this. Then there's deduction, which is I start from a solid truth that I can bet my life on. Uh, uh, all birds have wings. And then I look and say, this animal has wings, therefore it's a bird. Like those are facts, right? And so that's a data lineage. I need the data provenance. Did that bird actually have wings? Uh, and this could be a, a digital watermark or, or what have you. Uh, uh, but I need to establish data l provenance. Where did this data actually come from in some, in some form? And then I need data lineage as that data gets transformed, as it transfers to other databases across an organization. Can I track that transparently, right? That's it. So data provenance and data lineage is a, is a regulatory uh, issue. And then there's lastly uh, issue of circuit breakers. And these are all regulations that we should advocate to our politicians to uh, uh, enact. I, I, I participate in many of these conversations in the United States, but I, I, I welcome this broader conversation globally. Circuit breakers show up uh, as, 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 as hard stops in automation. So absent feedback from others, I will, as a, a nerd working in the basement, just link automation. I will just continue to link automation. But, but you know, sometimes I won't know when to stop or when I should keep a, uh, uh, keep, have, a have a break. I will, I just have my own quarterly objectives, absent other feedback. But, you know, in, in San Francisco right now, I am taking autonomous taxis with Waymo. So I, the, the car pulls up without anybody in the front seat. I unlock the car with the drivers, with, the, with my app. And then I get in, nobody else is in the car, and we are off and running. But there's a button there that says pull over uh, or call for help, right? Uh, so that's a type of circuit breaker. It's a, that's a physical manifestation, but that's, that's what I mean. Yes, uh, I get that, Eric. But, but the problem is, the moment the politicians get into the regulatory processes, the moment the big tech or the other companies would start to say, oh, this is curbing our freedom. That's absolutely true. 
uh, that, that we, that's why in the United States we have yet to uh, uh, install uh, safety protocols that would be appropriate to the risk uh, that we all experience from this technology. But that's, that's really what's required. So I, I said that there's a regulatory exam, uh, 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 part of this, and there is a technical portion of this. So the regulatory portion of this is data provenance, data lineage, and, and, uh, and circuit breakers. The technical part of this is using symbolic generative AI, which is deduction. And so you start with facts, you end up at facts. There's no amount of scale that's going to provide that level of safety with an inductive, probabilistic AI, such as is we experience with large language models. We need, and ultimately, these, these organizations will need both of those married together for different benefits. But that's the technical answer that a board of directors has to uh, at least understand, if not implement, which is I need, I need, a, I need a provably complete system. And that's a way to protect ourselves from, these, from a whole bunch of malfeasance that can, that can occur. Yes, and that is, you know, that is where, as you said, that with dealing with big tech, even a government like United States probably has not been able to find full fail-proof answers, complete fail-proof answers. And when it happens in a developing country like ours, the mo as I said, the moment you try to put those circuit breakers, the mo there'll be immediate pushback saying, oh, our freedom is being curbed or our, uh, the way we conduct our business globally is not being respected here. So that, that compounds the challenge for a country like India. So we do have uh, solutions, but they are in particular domains. So w what, what I did when I was working in the, in the federal government is I worked on provably complete airplanes, for example. Because you, you don't want, a, especially a military aircraft, to have any vulnerabilities to hacking. Right? Uh, and that is the basis upon which the technology that I have commercialized with my co-founders uh, finds, finds purchase uh, out in the world. We, we also do this in other parts of the U.S. government where you cannot afford to have errors. Uh, this, has to, this is a zero-tolerance environment. When you're drilling for oil or, or even putting up, up towers for windmills, that, that is a type of provably complete installation. When we construct a bridge, around the world, we don't keep driving trucks over this until the bridge collapses and then rebuild the bridge. Absolutely. They're provably complete models. Absolutely. This is, this is how you do it. That is, that's the answer to, to these AI implementations. Provably complete, plus probabilistic, married together for different purposes in these organizations. We, we've discussed past. Let me, you know, we've discussed the challenges that are emerging. Let me take you to the future. What's the future of AI? You know, I mean, uh, as you said, uh, Probably the larger world should be thankful to the chat GPT. What are the costs involved, first of all? You know, you've talked a lot about the cost. You've talked about the electricity being consumed uh, in, in its development, the computers. The, you know, you, people say, uh, people just see the front end. And when Sam Altman talks about 100 million or things like that, that's the front end, as you say. Uh, you've talked about the other costs, the costs in the back end. So first of all, what are the costs? And what's the future of AI? Yeah. You know, the, the cost of these probabilistic models, as, as we've all read about, is breathtakingly expensive, just in the energy consumption, let alone in the, in the chip production. I know India is really getting into chip production in a big way, and I am a fan uh, of India doing that. But uh, we should make no mistake about the, the path, the expensive path down which, down which we are all going uh, with, with increasing chip production. So I, I can talk about the future of AI in, in two ways. Uh, maybe I'll first talk about the probabilistic uh, AIs, like the large language models. There is a certain amount that we've all benefited from with scale. 
you know, when, when I was an academic researcher, we knew that there was benefits to scale, but we thought there was a, a ceiling to this. We had no idea that you, you, you throw t tens of billions of dollars at this and, and uh, suddenly we can get the benefits that we now see uh, with the, the video releases that we just got as, uh, released this past week. We, those are, in some extent, stochastic parrots or an autocomplete. Not to minimize that technology, because it's not a great representation, but it's kind of true that they are just autocompletes. Where the world is going, and I can put a time frame on this, because it's still in academic research, but when we say five or ten years, is that the, the probabilistic technology currently completes my sentence or creates a first draft, is how I use that, that probabilistic technology. But the next step is, I want to know how you're going to react to what I say. Because, you know, if I say... I want to go running, you're not going to say, look at the bird, or maybe you will, but it's at a disjointed. You know, there's a generally a predictable set of things that you're going to react to if I say I want to go running. Right? You, uh, that's, that's how we're going to get to prediction of your response. That's the future. Prediction, what I'm going to say, and then predict what you're going to respond. That's probabilistic, five to ten years. On the other side, the, the future of the determinative, uh, uh, deductive AI is that we can take the largest organizations in the country, think of mining, think of oil and gas, uh, and have all of that captured in this fact-based AI, this symbolic generative AI, such that leadership can make a decision on a laptop across the entire organization. That's, that's where this world is going. That may take a bit uh, uh, because you have to you, you have to capture all of the thinking, all of the models, in a way that your my AI can read them, a way that a machine can read them. But that's the opportunity. You know, one probabilistic, we're going to uh, predict what people are, how people are going to respond to my words, regardless of the language. Uh, the other is that we will be able to make decisions uh, on a laptop for the biggest organizations in the world. Mr. Daimler, my last question to you: uh, Should the world be I would say threatened is a, should the world be threatened is a strong word. Should the world be alarmed at the development or the pace that your favorite AI or regenerative AI or whatever you call it is taking? Should the world be alarmed? I, I think we should not be passive. We should be active. Uh, I, I am optimistic about what is available to us in improving the lives for the 8 billion people on the planet and the 1.2 billion people in India. I'm optimistic about what's possible, but sitting back and just waiting uh, for, for nerds like me to just develop our technology and then we'll see what happens is not the right approach. Uh, we need engagement, we need adoption, even, even embracing this technology to see what sort of boundaries work for us uh, as, as members of society. Kind of different than my role uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur. I want people to be experimenting. It is concerning that there will be, history tells us, some large percentage of the population that will not either be able to or be willing to engage with this transformation and develop the new skills. I, I fear for the increased uh, stratification uh, and, and increased disbursement of, uh, uh, of the rewards of this technology. Uh, so I think that is something that we can all be conscious of about how how to address this for the, the people that uh, are, are that, that somehow just need to be brought along. 
in, in the transformation of digital automation. Well, uh, you speak precisely you know, with your experiences all married into a public official, married into an entrepreneur. And thank you very much. Thank you very much for a very candid conversation, Mr. Eric Darman. Thanks for joining NDTV. It's good to be here. Enjoy thank it. You.